Welcome to the KPMG Tax Now podcast. In this podcast, we explore some of the more complex matters across tax, economics, regulation, and compliance. Each month, we meet with KPMG's foremost experts and other special guests to unpack key issues faced by taxpayers around the globe. Hi, everyone. My name's Tim Keeling, and I'm a transfer pricing partner at KPMG. I'm joined by Keith Swan, a partner in our tax controversy practice. Hi, Keith. Hi, Tim. How are you? Very well. Keith, we're going to talk today about all things transfer pricing. Um, Obviously, there's been some recent court case action, and transfer pricing is a key issue in the current COVID-19 environment. And I thought we'd give our listeners a little bit of a a feel of where both of those things are at. Um, Keith, I'd like to start with you just taking us through um, Glencourt. I know that uh, there's been some recent high court activity, but perhaps you can just give our listeners a little bit of a sense of where things got up to with the full federal court and and why um, the ATO decided to appeal. Yeah, thanks very much, Tim. Um, So now that the special leave has been refused and the full court decision stands, I I thought I'd just summarise the three key takeaways from the full court, and then later we can have a chat about uh, the approach taken by the commissioner in the high court. So a quick recap on the facts in Glencore. Glencore sold all of its copper concentrate to its Swiss parent, and there were two elements to the pricing calculation which were in issue in the case. One of those was the calculation of the treatment and copper refining charges. The parties used what was called a price sharing mechanism, and the commissioner argued that this should be set by a benchmark rate as previously agreed between the parties. Um, And secondly, there was an ability for the Swiss parent purchaser to pick the quotational period, which was used for determining the the copper price after being aware of the price of one or more of the periods. So in terms of the three key takeaways, the first one is, is expert evidence. An important factor in determining the outcome was the courts, the full court's preference for the taxpayer's expert evidence. Um, in the case, there was a there was a number of factors that were kind of identified by the full court as, as issues with the commissioner's expert evidence, and these included things like reliance on hindsight for determining the the foregone revenue that was calculated in the expert commissioner's expert report. And, and also there was a, a focus in the Commissioner's Expert Report on the commerciality of changing the agreement rather than what should have been the focus in, accordan- in accordance with the, high, the federal court's reasoning, which was on the, the test, the, the test in the legislation. That should have been the focus according to the full court. Uh, second takeaway. Um, And probably the most important factor in determining the outcome of the case was the uh, availability of comparables or reference points as as the full court uh, called them. And this was because the comparables that were identified by the taxpayers expert demonstrated that arm's length parties in the marketplace entered into agreements with similar pricing mechanisms to those used by Glencore. Interestingly, the full court acknowledged that that there were differences between the comparables or reference points that were identified by the taxpayer 
and and the and the actual pricing mechanism used by the parties. But even though there were these differences, the full court used this phrase reference points to say that they were still useful in demonstrating that there were other arm's length parties in the market that use similar terms. The third key takeaway I was going to briefly touch on was this concept of depersonalization. Depersonalization is really just a fancy word for uh, explaining the basic concept in, in applying the arm's length principle, whereby there is a comparison between the actual transaction entered into by the parties and the arm's length transaction. And the controversy in the case, which I think still exists, is the extent to which you use the characteristics, the actual characteristics of the taxpayer in determining the arm's length transaction that is um, the, the, the comparison point for the purposes of applying the transfer pricing provisions. And it was really interesting to see the way in which the full court dealt with that issue. And in particular, um, where it was really crystallized in the case was the taxpayer was not required to put on actual evidence of its actual risk appetite. It only had to show that arm's length parties in the marketplace would use similar pricing mechanisms to address the, the volatility in the market and address their the arm's length parties' concerns about about risk. So Tim, that's a little bit about the concepts in the full federal court decision in Glencore. Um, but perhaps before moving on to the special leave hearing last week, I'm interested to hear from you about how taxpayers are managing these concepts in practice, particularly particularly as we emerge from COVID. Yeah, it's really interesting, Keith. I think you know for me. You know, there's some interesting themes that play through from Glencore to how we're trying to, you know, address um, from a transfer pricing perspective, COVID-19. Obviously, COVID-19, a, a huge um, health impact across the world, and following that, a massive economic impact that's um, crossed over borders, that's crossed over multiple industries, and it's really, it's really interesting to see how. You know, the full federal court, um, when looking at data from over 10 years ago, is, is adopting some similar concepts and approaches to what the OECD and ATO are saying now. And, and you use that that, that um, phrase of reference points. And, and, and I think the challenge that our clients have at the moment is that we're living through this right now and the data is emerging. So what is the best evidence and what are those best reference points? And, and indeed, the OECD and the ATO do say, you might not have a perfect comparable out there, but if you can show us some third-party behaviour that you know independent parties are thinking about these, you know your your fact patterns in similar ways, are tackling the issues in a similar way, and you're replicating that through your transfer pricing arrangements, that's going to be a really good starting point. Um, now that evidence might be limited at the moment, but it might continue to emerge. But I think like Glencore and like SNF and others, naturally, if there's any third-party reference points connected to the taxpayer, those what we call those internal cups, um, that's going to be you know be given a lot of credibility and a lot of weighting by the ATO, and as we know in the past by the courts as well. I think following on from that you know that that lack of publicly available data issue at the moment, 
you know, the, the ATO and the OECD also talk about doing what we call these but-for analyses. So tell us what would have happened but-for COVID. So show us the impact at the revenue line. Show us the impact um, in terms of the abnormal expenses that you've um, incurred. And if you can adjust for those reliably and compare them to some, you know, some um, what I'll call practical and pragmatic market data, that will be a really good starting point. And I think, you know, where we're going with clients at the moment is, when we're tackling this, we want to have some preliminary data on standby where we don't want to be um, litigation ready. Of course, no one wants to be litigation ready and, and compliance budgets only go so far. But if we have some of this starting evidence available to us, it's going to serve us well if a tax authority does ask a question down the track for us to be able to explore those areas um, further rather than starting with a blank page and thinking, you know, gee whiz, where do I start? What happened um, all of those years ago? The only other point, Keith, I think it's really important to mention is when you're comparing to that market data, um, you know, the goalposts have shifted a little bit. We used to focus a lot about um, things like functions, assets and risks and terms and conditions of contract. And that's all good and well when you've got, um, you know, a very stable um, macroeconomic picture. But when you've got all of these countries and indeed all of these industries within um, countries having very different experiences with respect to COVID, uh, naturally that requires you to be a little bit more careful in terms of the market data that you're comparing to. So if you're a distributor or a manufacturer or you have a particular transaction in an industry and you're trying to justify the pricing of that based on a reference point that um, is in a industry that may have had a very different experience, naturally that might be challenged. So, you know, our clients are really making sure they're pausing and reflecting here and saying, okay, if I'm going to go to market data, if I'm going to go to these reference points, it really needs to have a stronger correlation to where I sit um, within the economy so I can, I can express with confidence that the decisions I've made with respect to my international related party dealings are commercial and, and are, are aligned to what independent parties would have done in similar circumstances. I guess before I throw to you, Back to you, Keith, on the high core point. I just wanted to touch on a couple more points re regarding evidence and your comments on Glencore. You know, to me, there is a there's an issue here that the judges have clearly, as you say, taken um, a, a slightly lower standard with in terms of the onus of proof and the degree of evidence needed with these reference points versus perfect comparables. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how both taxpayers and the ATO respond to that. Um, certainly, um, if you look at the latest draft PCG that the ATO has put out on intangibles, um, it's clear their evidence expectations haven't dropped yet. <laughs> They've uh, certainly asked for a, a wide range of um, evidence when it comes to intangibles um, in that draft PCG. Um, and if you look at, for, for example, other um, statistics such as their APA statistics, you can see that you know, over the last six to seven years, the time that's taken, for example, to do a unilateral APA has gone from less than one year to up to two and a half years. And I think, um, you know, that's really interesting and it shows that probably the ATO is spending a lot more time information gathering and, and evidence checking um, than, than it did in the past. And of course, the ATO has a job to do, but I think with this, um, this full federal court guidance, which is really focused on, you know, um, themes of pragmatism and practicality, it'll be interesting to see if the ATO's um, expectations or standards change. Um, and I think that's probably a good segue, Keith, to throw back to you, because I think, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the high court action that we saw last week, um, the standard of evidence, again, was a, was a pretty common theme that came through um, in the dialogue um, that happened at the high court. 
Yeah, that that's right, Tim. And um, I agree with you that in these difficult times and with a you know transfer pricing legislation which has a lot of uncertainty attached to it, um, the the guidance from the full court around flexibility in adducing evidence reference points was welcomed. Um, the High Court refused special leave to the Commissioner and the basis for that was that the High Court considered that the matter largely turned on its facts. Um, interestingly, the Commissioner sought to argue that there was a, an issue of principle and it really did come down to this point around the extent to which the transfer pricing test requires consideration of what the actual taxpayer would have agreed to on arm's length terms, rather than simply considering where the transaction fits in the range of arm's length options. Um, and and this, this is the issue around risk and the extent to which the, the taxpayer was required to actually adduce evidence about um, its own risk appetite, which, which the full court said was not necessary because all it really needed to do was determine how arm's length parties managed risk. So that's a, that's an issue of principle that um, the commissioner will need to fight another day. Um, the high court finding that that really um, it was a it was a it was an issue of fact in the case. So um, it will be interesting to see, and I think we could probably expect that the ATO to have another go at that in in future litigation, and and perhaps try to argue that in future cases the court should have greater regard to the taxpayer's characteristics and circumstances in, in determining the arm's length transaction. Um, so, so there'll be more to come along those lines, but I, I, do, I do agree with you, Tim, that I, I think that um, the, the ATO should consider some of that guidance from the full court around prag pragmatism and flexibility in determining uh, comparables and consider how that might actually help taxpayers in compliance comply with their transfer pricing obligations in a in a difficult and uncertain um, economic environment. We'll summarise, Keith. We, Keith, we could talk about this for many, many more hours, but uh, we're going to uh, cut it off now, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, I want to really thank you for your time, Keith. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you to all the listeners who have um, taken the time to listen to this podcast. Please feel free to visit our KPMG website if you'd like further information. Thanks for listening to another episode of the KPMG Tax Now podcast. If you'd like to ask us a question, please send us an email at kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au. Be sure to subscribe at kpmg.com forward slash au forward slash tax now or follow our LinkedIn page, KPMG Tax Now Insights. That's all for now. We look forward to sharing more insights with you soon.